You are listening to a sermon from the season of Lent at Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, visit us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. So in a Time Magazine article written near the end of his life and career, the famed theologian Karl Barth said that for 40 years he'd been giving some advice to young theologians who came to him, and it was to read, take your Bible and take your newspaper, read both, but interpret your newspaper from your Bible. In the game of telephone that is often played with quotes, I've heard this communicated to preachers as to preach with your Bible in one hand and your newspaper with the other, in the other, which misses something really essential about the quote, which is the idea that the Bible is actually the primary source here. It's the one that is over and above all others, but it does at least contain the idea that it's important for those who are going to proclaim the world, uh, the word of God, to also be able to look at what's going on in the world around them and explain how the word of God speaks to the situation in which we find ourselves today. This is not at all bad advice. In fact, I think it's pretty good advice. I try to keep abreast of what's going on in the world. But I think that Jesus would have put it a little bit differently if newspapers had existed in his day. In our gospel reading from today, taken from Luke chapter 13, we have the rare opportunity to see how Jesus speaks to the crowds who are following him just as he receives news of current events. As he is teaching someone tells him of an incident where Pilate had mingled the blood of the Galileans with their sacrifices. We don't know anything more about this incident than what's recorded here in the Gospel of Luke. There's no other sources that attest to what happened. Um, so anything that we, details that we make up are in some ways speculation about what happened. But what seems likely here is that they're probably Galilean pilgrims who came to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices. And normally the person who was going to offer the sacrifice would slaughter the animal themselves, and then the priest would gather up the blood and, act and actually take it to the altar to make the sacrifice. And so somewhere in that process of them slaughtering their animals, Pilate came in and slaughtered the people who were coming to offer the sacrifice. And they died, their blood mixing with the sacrifice that they had been about to make. And it showed this heinous incident shows Pilate's complete disregard for Jewish life, his disregard for Jewish religious practices, to do it here at this moment where there is a, not just a the taking of life, but also the desecration of something that is holy, shows his brutality. And the crowd comes and they want to know, how is Jesus going to respond to this event? And if we are just looking at the, the version of the quote where we look at taking the news and the scriptures, Jesus' response can honestly seem kind of callous. He says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. There's no acknowledgement in his response of the heinous nature of the atrocity, no space made for public lament at injustice. And I think the reason why is that the, the piece that's missing from the idea of taking the newspaper and the Bible 
Jesus does so well is that we also need to understand the human heart and what's going on in the crowd as they even bring this news to him. Jesus, of course, knows what's going on in the hearts of those who are speaking to him. And in other circumstances, in moments of deep and personal grief, Jesus is gentle with those who are grieving. He is gentle with those who need to lament. But in this situation, this particular moment, he understands that the crowd's fascination with the macabre, the outrage that they may be hoping to evoke in him, and their own sense of pride is in danger of obscuring the call that God is making upon their life right now, in this moment as they bring this news. And this happens to us all the time. How many of us have known someone who's always glued to the news, moving from one horrific event to the other, and then is living in either perpetual outrage or constant anxiety over what is going on in the world? How many, of us, how many of us have been that person, if only for a while? I know that I have fallen into that trap at times. Just a couple weeks ago, when the Russian invasion of Ukraine was beginning, I found myself refreshing the news more often than normal, trying to keep a hand on what's happening, watching as things evolve. And part of what I found going on in my mind was I want to understand the events, in part so you can kind of make sure that it's not going to filter out and affect me directly, but also there was this sense that I had that if I could only understand the events and what's going on, I can come up with a plan for what needs to be done, and of course I have no actual authority to implement the plan, but then if I know what should be done, I can get really mad at the people who aren't doing it. And so not only can I have a sense of fear at what's going on in the world and what I might be dragged into, I can have outrage at the people who are not handling it properly. And in doing that, I'm completely missing the point of faith and trust in God. In looking at the events that are going out there and allowing myself to get caught up in anxiety and outrage, that is not a posture of faith. And it is hiding from what God is doing in me right now. And certainly this is the impulse or part of what Jesus saw in those who brought him the news of the Galileans. His rebuke indicates that they were trying to interpret this tragedy through some way of looking at it that is apart from trusting God. Really what they're trying to do is they're trying to interpret the tragedy through the lens of karma. The idea that if we just do good things, good things will happen to us. And if we do bad things, bad things will happen to us. They wouldn't have known it by those terms, of course, but it's the same basic idea. That they can look at those people that this incident happened to, this horrific incident, and they can think in their minds, well, that didn't happen to me, so it must mean that they were particularly bad sinners. They'd done something horrible to deserve it. Otherwise, something so horrible would not have happened to them. And we are not immune to this kind of thinking. Even if we reject karma in name, though I have known Christians who have actually spoken those words, this idea that I can just do the right thing and good things will happen to me. 
But even if we reject that, we know that it's not true. If we fall into the trap of believing the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, the idea that only if I have the right kind of faith that God's blessings will be poured out upon me, we're falling into a kind of karma, really, not our trust in a loving father. When we think that if something goes wrong after we've made an important decision, it must mean that we've made the wrong decision. That I didn't hear God's will properly because that bad thing happened to me. That's not trust in a loving father who gives us good gifts. That's a belief in karma. On the flip side, when we see good things happening to somebody who we think lives a particularly holy life, and we go, God gave them that gift because they're so good. That must be what I need to do if I want to have those good gifts. Then we're falling into that same trap, thinking that by our behavior we can manipulate what God does for us. And all of these ways of thinking are really an attempt to exert some control over the world. If I believe that if I live a holy and good life, that good things will happen to me, then that gives me some control by my behavior over what's going to happen to me. If I believe that bad things happen to other people when they are sinners, then that means that if I can just avoid sin, if I can kind of control how far I go down the wrong path, then I can keep myself from having really bad things happen to me. And it's tempting to believe this because of the types of control it allows us to have. But it's false. It's a lie. It gives us a false sense of security. And then when we look at awful things happening in the world, when we look at people who are believing Christians who are displaced as refugees, those who have faith in God who get caught up in the midst of genocide, people whom we know who we know that they're faithful and they get sick. And they don't get better. And they die. And it undermines our faith because we don't have a trust in the loving God. But Jesus rejects this way of thinking. He says this is not how God works. He says the Galileans were not slain because they were particularly notorious sinners. It's not something that they've done that they're worse than you. Nor is that the case who perished with the other example of current events that he draws in when the Tower of Siloam fell and 18 people were crushed. But his rejection of this was not a, that this was not a particular judgment of God upon them because of their awful sin doesn't lead him to the conclusion that so many in our world take when we reject the idea of karma. In general, if you look at our world, when we reject the idea of karma, what replaces it is just an idea of randomness. Stuff happens to people all the time, and just bad stuff happens, and good stuff happens, and there's no idea what's going to happen to you. It's just all random. And what Jesus points to in this instance is that we are all under the judgment of God. This is the truth that his listeners wanted to avoid, where Jesus cut right to the heart. 
when he says repent or you will likewise perish, he's already rejected the idea that by their behavior they can manipulate the events that are going to happen to them. This can't mean clean up your life or something bad might happen to you. He's already said, no, that's not the case. You're looking at it wrong if you see that. What he's telling his listeners that they need to hear is that if they do not turn from their sin, if they do not turn from their trust in themselves, if they do not turn from their ability that they can manipulate the world around them by their behavior, then it's eternal death that they are destined for. If they don't turn to God and put their trust in God, then it's not just a tower that's going to fall on them or the Roman government swooping in and potentially killing them. It is the judgment of God himself that will fall upon them. It is eternal death. And this pushes back against the tendency that most of us want to believe about the world. And this is true of people who are Christians and people who are not Christians. I think most of us want to believe that people are basically good. And this becomes the foundation of hope for those who are put their faith in some form of secular humanism. The idea that people can somehow make the world better if only they try. If we just set up the right conditions, if we rally enough people to our cause, if we take care of some of the conditions that force people to do bad things, if we get rid of poverty, if we make it so that Women don't have to give birth to babies and have single moms who are living on the edge. If we can just provide enough social services, enough people with a sort of universal wealth, if we can just distribute it evenly, if we can take care of that problem, then our problem with sin will go away too. The idea here is that people are basically bad because of their circumstances, so if we can take care of the circumstances, we can fix what's wrong with people. But the Bible says that the basic condition of the human heart after the fall is that it is sinful. And because of that, we are all under God's judgment, and because of that, no matter what conditions we create, there will always fail to fundamentally change the way that the world works. This is something I've heard from people even in the last couple weeks, falling into this trap of believing that things should be better. I've heard people talk about the war in Russia with disbelief that this could happen in the 21st century. How can we not be beyond this by now? Or people who see, because this is happening in Europe and not some African nation that we can dismiss as undeveloped with not the right amount of wealth, not the right amount of access to information and knowledge, we believe that because it's happening in a place that has access to the same things that we have, we go, how can this happen with someone who's educated? How can this happen with somebody who's wise? And the answer is because there is sin in the human heart. And wealth and education and conditions that are right for human flourishing do not make the sin go away. And let me be clear, this is not only true of the Putins of the world, who seem to have so much for themselves and still want more, and not care who it hurts. 
is true of you and of me. We cannot simply overcome our sin by putting ourselves in the right circumstances, in the right conditions. We are not disobedient with our giving because we just don't have enough money. We're not disobedient with loving our neighbor because we just don't have enough time. We don't mistreat our spouse or our kids just because life is so hard for me. We do it because we have a problem with sin that is deep in our heart. And it's not going to go away if we can just make the circumstances better. Because we have this problem with sin that is embedded deeply in all of us, part of what Jesus reminds us in this passage is that we are deserving of God's judgment. And this is the beginning of good news. And I know that sounds crazy because it seems kind of bleak and terrible. It sounds like sin is a problem that we cannot overcome. It sounds like the world is just destined to go on in this cycle of repeating death and, and just sorrow and, and just it's going to hurt all the time. But it's not until we understand the depths of our sin and our inability to overcome it on our own that we can understand the height of God's mercy. And this is what Jesus is pointing to in the parable of the fig tree, where he follows up this news of current events. He tells the story of how the landowner comes and sees a tree that has been planted for three years, and it has not borne any fruit. And he says to the gardener, rip it out. There's no fruit here. It's no good. Get rid of it. And the gardener says, give it a little bit more time. I'm going to treat it tenderly. I'm going to dig around the roots and see maybe if I can loosen something up that was there, that it was clinging to, that wasn't any good for it. I'm going to feed it with good food. I'm going to fertilize it. And then maybe it will bear fruit. So hold off. Wait, wait for a little longer. This is what God is doing for us. By rights, we should be ripped out of the ground. By rights, all of us, Christian or non-Christian, I'm not just speaking to those within the church, we deserve to fall underneath the judgment of God. But instead, he treats us tenderly. He treats us with kindness. He shows us mercy. And he gives us time to repent, to bear the fruit of repentance that he desires to see in us. Every breath that we take is at the mercy of God. And I don't just mean this in some abstract way. I mean, I deserve to fall under God's judgment the moment I am born. In this moment here, I deserve to be struck down if it was only counted by my sin. I am not holy. I cannot stand before a holy God. And I deserve to be wiped from the face of the earth. But God, in his mercy, lets me take this breath and the next one. Do you think that the people of Noah's day, when God looked upon the earth and wiped out humanity with a flood, were more sinful than ours? You know what it said of Noah's day when God decided to look upon them and wipe out the, the earth? It said 
the, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. Do you not think that could be said of our day as well? The earth is corrupt and it is filled with violence. And it's not our righteousness that keeps us from destruction. It's not our righteousness that stays God's hand. It is God's mercy. It's God's promise. His promise that he would not destroy the earth again. His promise that he would send someone who would take care of this problem of sin, who would free us from this cycle, who would lift us up to where we could be holy and live with him. And he keeps his promises and he shows us mercy. This is the real good news. It's not just that God has preserved us for a little while longer. It's not even that while I am preserved, I have the magnificent beauty that God has given us, where I can look out from my backyard and I can see the mountains, I can see the trees, I can walk around and see the beauty that God has created in the earth. There is goodness all around. And if that was all that God gave us, it would still be a sign of his mercy. But it is not only that. His mercy is that he sent his son his perfect son, who had not fallen under the curse of sin. And he said, I will put the judgment that you deserve on him. And then I will declare that you no longer live under judgment. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, The good news is that the weight of all of that sin that bears upon us, the judgment of God that rightly points to humanity, the wrath of God, is not upon us any longer. That we don't walk under this idea that that the the axe is just going to fall at the moment that I'm not looking. The judgment of God is going to happen any moment now because I know I deserve it. The truth is that in Christ, all of that is lifted away from us. If we repent, if we turn away from our trust in ourselves, if we put our trust in God, the good news is that judgment is wiped away. Listen to the way that Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God is not just giving us good things for right now, loosening the soil around the roots and and fertilizing us so that we can have a little bit of a moment here. He's doing it because this is his desire. This is his heart. This is his fundamental orientation towards us, is that he desires to do this forever and ever and ever to lift us up with Christ Jesus. And there's a sense in which if you put your faith in him, this is already true of you. You're lifted up with Christ Jesus. There's part of you that it's true that you are in the heavenly places with him right now. This is the good news. 
that God's kindness and mercy has given us time to repent, and in that repentance, he has given us every good gift that there is. In Christ, the sin that condemned us is removed forever, and we who were destined for eternal death are now freely given eternal life. And so, I'll echo the words of Jesus and say, if you have not yet received this gift, if you are here gathered among the people of God, but you have never actually fundamentally turned away from putting your trust in yourself, your belief that you can control this situation if you just act good enough, if you've never confessed your sin, if you've never repented from sin and turned instead, turned your face to God, then repent or perish. There is no other option, no other way. Repent or perish. And if you have, if you are one of those, and I know that this is true of, of most of you here, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you have trusted in him that God would save you, if you recognize that you cannot lift yourself out of the muck and instead you have turned to him, give thanks for the immeasurably great gift that you have received in Christ Jesus our Lord. And recognize this gift when you're tempted to act as if it hasn't actually taken place. When you're tempted to walk in a life of sin, thinking that somehow there's going to be satisfaction, that you can get more out of this life, remember that it's not true. Down that path of independence from God lies death. And it's not only once that we are called to repent. We are called to repent over and over again as we walk the Christian life. There are times that we turn our faces from Jesus, that we stop looking and putting our trust in him, that we think that we can somehow control the world around us, and that way leads only to death because of God's kindness. Because now you're a tree planted in the garden of God, and if he sees that you are not bearing the fruit of repentance, if it is not evident in your life that you have turned from sin and turned instead to him, he will treat you tenderly. But sometimes that will involve some shaking out of the dirt that's in the roots that you're holding on to. And it can be uncomfortable when there's something that you're clinging to that God says, this is not good. I'm going to clean it out. And he will pour fertilizer upon us. And sometimes having fertilizer put on you feels a lot like being, having a bunch of manure piled onto you. <laughs> But it is God in his mercy giving us what is good for us because he knows where the source of true and eternal life is. This is part of why we walk through a season of Lent together. Is that we are recognizing in all of us the tendency to go astray. The tendency to turn our eyes from the one place where our true hope, true hope lies and instead to look and try to manufacture and control things by our own will. And we repent. We confess our sin to God, to me, to one another. 
because we know that the gardener is treating us gently. We know that in his kindness, what he desires is to see us bear the fruit of repentance. And he does this so that we can bear fruit. He desires that we bear fruit so that we can live in the garden forever. The one that he has created for you and me. So remember that you have no control. But that's good news. Because God loves you. And no matter how great your sin is, God's mercy is even greater. So turn to the one who loves you and treats you with kindness. Repent. Come back to the one in whom there is true life. Amen. This was a sermon audio from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church, a community of gospel hope in Fort Collins, Colorado, inviting you to join us around God's table. Find out more online at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. Now go in peace to love and serve the Lord.